Amy's guilty secret, and she give given me permission to share this, by the way, is that she loves The Apprentice. We've got any Apprentice fans in the room? Anybody likes watching? Oh, a couple of people. No one's really uh, willing to admit it. <coughs> I can't watch The Apprentice. No judgment on Amy. I just can't watch it. Uh, I find it toe cringingly awkward. I just, uh, and particularly for me, honestly, it's the bravado. It's that sort of uh, outrageous, misplaced confidence in people's ability. And you sort of see this in every episode, but I did gather a couple of quotes, uh, which just evidence, which give an example of the sort of confidence you might expect to see in The Apprentice. Uh, here's what one contestant said, I'm not a one-trip pony. I'm not a ten-trick pony. I've got a whole field of ponies waiting <laughs> to literally run towards this job. Another said, I think outside the box. If I was an apple pie, the apples inside me would be oranges. That doesn't make any sense. This one's a good one. As a salesperson, I'd rate myself as probably the best in Europe. <laughs> it's good. This one, I like this one. Don't tell me the sky's the limit when there are footprints on the moon. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, yeah, I could use that. I'm my favorite. Everything I touch turns to sold. Yeah, it's good. That'll, that'll preach. Okay, so this is sort of outrageous confidence that uh, contestants of The Apprentice, for whatever reason, are. Just, I feel duty-bound to show. But actually, when we look at our culture, we see as well that there is this story, there's this narrative of uh, displaying confidence. There's this understanding that, and you even see it in the way that we teach our children, this is sort of Disney narrative that we live with. You know, you can do anything if you just believe. You just need to have the confidence. If you believe in yourself, uh, it can happen. You can make it happen. Confidence is seen as like a, a, an essential uh, thing. And of course, in part, that is true. But there's a particular kind of confidence that I, I think we see reflected or demanded in the world in which we live. And it's this sort of narrow self-confidence. I don't know what your experience is with confidence, but mine is of seeing it ebb and flow, seeing it come and go. And actually, I, I think if you, if you sort of came to talk to my family uh, when I was during my teenage years, they'd probably say that I sounded a lot like a contestant of The Apprentice. I'm going to do it. I'm going to nail it. You know, I, I think that it's said uh, Johnny's pretty arrogant. He's very sure of himself. And he knows what he thinks. And, uh, and he's somebody that's pretty confident. But actually, at that time in my life, and actually through a lot of my life, that outer sense, that outer display of confidence has masked a deeper insecurity, a deeper questioning. Can I do it? Am I enough? Have I got what it takes? And actually, when I look at my own life, uh, behind that outer confidence was uh, a story of comparison. Comparison with other people. Have I got what it takes compared to them? Am I as good as they are? And along with comparison, also a sense of competition. And rather than displaying a deep inner confidence, comparison and competition actually display a deep insecurity. There are some people who just exude confidence. And it doesn't come from a place of striving, a place of trying to make it happen in, our, in their own strength, but they just, they, you look at them, you spend time with them, 
And they're not an anxious presence, but they're deeply peaceful. I had an opportunity a few years ago. I, look, I'm not name dropping here. I, I would name drop, but hopefully this is an example. An example. But I had an opportunity a few years ago with a group of other people to go and spend some time with a guy called Eugene Peterson. Some people will have heard of Eugene Peterson. He's uh, sort of um, well written a lot of books. He's a sort of very he's a well known pastor. And and if you've got a copy of the Message Bible, then you've read that was his translation. He's a He's a sort of kind of person that you would want to meet. And so uh, a number of us did go and meet him and spent some time in his home. We asked him some questions. The thing that struck me most about Eugene Peterson was how comfortable he was in his own skin. We went for a, a meal the first night that we got there, and, and my cousin and I that, who went to see him were, we almost missed uh, getting there all together. We almost missed our flight and almost missed a connecting flight. He lives in Montana, which is very difficult to get to. But we got there just in time. We went out for a meal that evening. What shocked me about Eugene Peterson was how joyful he was. Was how often in the conversation he was smiling. He just was, his whole face would light up, he would beam. There was this deep sense of him being at home in himself. That's the kind of confidence we're talking about. That's the kind of confidence we need. It's not a bravado, it's not an outer, externally imposed a bullishness. It is a deep, settled, peaceful confidence. The Apostle Paul was a person of great confidence. He was known as somebody of confidence. But again, like Eugene Peterson, his confidence enabled him to stay the course even when external pressures were upon him. He was able to stay secure. What is it that's the heart of people? What is it that enables us to have that holiness, that wholeness that breeds confident peace and security? It is at the heart a question of having a secure identity. Confidence comes. There is an inescapable, uh, irrevocable link, a connection between true confidence and a strong identity. So if we want to be people who have deep, secure confidence... And therefore, they're able to live lives of inner peace. We're not uh, blown about by every wind that we are secure and stable. We need to find out who we are. And that's what we pick up when we read this text, Philippians 3. So I'm just going to read a couple of verses again and we'll uh, continue. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write these same things to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard. Okay, what Paul is doing here is continuing this letter to this church that he loves, that he planted probably about AD 49, and he really loves them. And now he's getting into a different section. He's been uh, talking to them about how they should live, and now he's looking ahead to this church. Not looking back, but looking ahead and saying, look, I need to do a couple of things now before I close off this letter. I'm running out of parchment here. And there's a couple of things you need to know. Uh, firstly, I want to safeguard your future. I want to make sure that you're okay going forward from this moment. So Paul looks to safeguard their future and he does that uh, by giving them some warnings. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Who are these dogs to whom Paul is referring? These 
evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. Well, Paul is referring to a group of people who may have already been through Philippi. They may not yet have been through Philippi. Probably they haven't, because that's why he's warning them ahead of time. He's safeguarding them from a particular group of people. And it's a group of people that have followed Paul, that have been like a, a stench following him around all the way through his ministry. And they've just trotted into the towns where he's planted churches, where he's done ministry to people, where he's led people to, uh, into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, who weren't already Jewish followers of Jesus. He's led them to faith in Jesus. And, and these people have trotted in afterwards and said, look, it's amazing. It's amazing what God's done in your life. It's amazing, Gentile converts to the one true faith that you've met with Jesus. It's amazing that the Holy Spirit is now working in your life, uh, that you're being transformed from the inside out. Isn't that fantastic? Wonderful. Paul taught you, taught you some amazing things. Great. However, to be a fully functioning member of the people of God, uh, to, be, to become part of Abraham's line, to be grafted into the people of God, what you need also to do is to receive in your body the sign of belonging to God's covenant people. And that is circumcision. It's wonderful what God's done in your life. Jesus is great, but can I, can I also interest you in circumcision? Funny question. Uh, not today, thanks. But for, for these people, they were so desperate. They were so desperate to be fully part of the people of God. They were taken away, uh, taken in by this teaching. And you might say, well, actually, what, what's the harm in it? Other than the obvious, what's the harm uh, in it? <laughs> Move on, Johnny. Those jokes aren't working this morning. What's the harm in it? For Paul, it wasn't just a, um, a peripheral thing. It went deeper than the surface. For Paul to, to submit to circumcision was a betrayal of the gospel. You see, for Paul, this is why, for Paul, the gospel was this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. To be a part of the people of God, to be saved, to be brought into relation with God, you only needed Jesus. And the whole point was that he'd done everything. He'd fulfilled all that was necessary to come into a relationship with God. And therefore, to seek to add something to Jesus, whether it be circumcision or obeying the kosher law or whatever part of the law it might have been, was to say that Jesus wasn't enough in himself. And so for Paul, this was a complete betrayal of the gospel. He was very clear in a number of different parts of uh, a number of different letters, particularly, if you want to see it very clearly, read Galatians. For Paul to trust in circumcision, to bring him to God's family, trust was showing, evidencing that you lacked confidence in Jesus to do it. That you didn't believe that the fact that the Holy Spirit had been given to you was a sure sign. You were looking for something else. Confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the external appearance. That's the kind of confidence Paul is warning against. It is the kind of confidence displayed in contestants of the apprentice. Confidence in the flesh, confidence in the achievements, confidence in the performance, confidence in anything external. Paul, say, it, Paul says, if you're leaning on that kind of confidence, it will never be enough. It'll never be enough. We put confidence in the flesh anytime we trust in our achievements. To justify us. Confidence in the flesh anytime we trust in our performance 
or our natural gifts to build our sense of identity. What might that be for you? What about trusting in your family name? Trusting in your education? Trusting in your career choice? Trusting in your skills, your gifts, your bank balance, your future prospects, your looks, your relationships. Here's the problem. Who's the judge? Typically the judge is either us, we judge, if we're doing okay, and that's deeply problematic, as I said to you before. Typically, if we're the judge, we oscillate between a position of inflation, I'm doing great, and deflation. When somebody else comes along, who's doing better. And that's so, by the way, that's one of the ways you know if you're putting confidence in the flesh, is if you're deflated, when somebody else comes along who's more gifted than you, leads to deflation. It's evidence that there's confidence in the wrong location. Either we're the judge, or even worse, we allow other people to stand in judgment on our success. So if somebody disapproves of us, it breaks our hearts. We spend the rest of the day thinking, oh my gosh, what do they think of me? What? I, by the way, I do this more than I'd like to admit. Why did I say that? What do they now think of me? We're allowing other people to judge. When it's going well, we're doing okay. Fine. But when it's not, we feel distraught. A few years ago, actually it was that very same time I went to uh, Montana. I went, as I said, as a, a group of pastors. I don't know, but we've actually done this every year since. It'd be fair to say there were more people present the first year when we got to see Eugene Pickson than there have been since. But it was quite a big group of people. And somebody, the guy who was, who was leading the gathering, um, before we got to see Eugene, we were sort of in this hotel, and I don't know, a group of 30 of us, and, somebody, and the guy asked the question, so we're just going to, if you just introduce yourself, uh, you can say to people, you know, what your name is, uh, and why you're here. Now what he meant was, say your name, that bit obvious, why you're here, and what, what he meant by why you're here was, what is it you're hoping to get out of it? Now, I'll be honest, I felt really insecure in that gathering. It wasn't just that we were going to go and see Eugene Peterson, but it was that a lot of people in that room I, I looked up to significantly. Uh, they, they were sort of not just peers, but like older brothers who were five, ten years on. Most of them had written books. Most of them lead churches. I didn't lead a church at that point, but their churches are in the hundreds, maybe even the thousands, and it was deeply intimidating. Some of them were dear friends of mine, still are dear, dear friends of mine, but I felt insecure, deeply insecure. When the question came around to me, rather than ask, answering the question, what is it you're hoping to get out of this? I completely interpreted the question wrongly. I, 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 I answered the question. I said, look, you know, why, what, why are you here? I answered the question, oh, I don't really know. I'm here because John Mark invited me. And everyone thought, oh, it's funny. Oh, good gag. I wasn't actually trying to be funny. Uh, but I got back to my hotel room and my cousin Pete, who was with me, gave me a severe dressing down. He said, Johnny, get it together, man. That's not why you're here. You're here because, da 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 da, you know, he encouraged me and he challenged me. In that moment, I, just, I allowed a deep sense of insecurity to name me. I was looking to establish my confidence in this group, 
in an external way. And here's the thing, I couldn't do it because they'd all achieved more than me. So who was I in a group of people where others had achieved more than me? Now Paul, this is what I love about him. He's just awesome. (laughs) He does actually give his CV here in the midst of it. Maybe you saw this. Verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. In other words, you should not put confidence in the flesh. But if we are playing that game, (laughs) just come and have a look in my uh, CV. Here we go. You ready? (laughs) If someone else thinks they have reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. In other words, born into their family of God. Of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, of the tribe that gave Israel their first king. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, not a Greek Jew. Uh, He spoke Aramaic. Uh, A Pharisee. You know that the Pharisees, uh, there were 613 commands in the law. The Pharisees were so strict about Torah observance, they added another 1,500 on top. In other words, I'm really serious about God's law. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He never faulted in his obedience to the law. That's confidence in the flesh. And unless you live a perfect life, confidence in the flesh will never, ever get you there. And you're never going to live a perfect life. We have to find a better basis for our identity than our external confidence, than fleshly confidence, than self-confidence. And Paul offers us a second basis here. Whatever gains to me, whatever were gains to me, this is verse 7, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever is what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things. I consider them garbage. The Greek word there is skubala. It means dung or worse, if you can imagine such a word. I consider them garbage. Just looking for that word. But I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes from God based on faith. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, that somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's a second kind of confidence that Paul displays here. And it's not confidence. You notice he doesn't use the word confidence at all in the second half of the scripture. What word does he use to describe it? It isn't confidence. It is righteousness the word he takes is this word righteousness it's another word entirely now we can be a bit confused about this word righteousness because actually a lot of times we have become confused and we make righteousness out to be another thing that we attain we think that righteousness is some kind of moral perfection but actually in the in the bible that isn't what righteousness is to be made righteous to, to be declared righteous is to receive Uh, is to receive a verdict on your behalf. Uh, To be righteous is literally means, in the original language, to be declared to be in the right. It is a legal declaration. So if if I was going to declare Jordan this morning to be in the right, I would would say justified. It's the declaration that a judge gives at the end uh, of of a trial. 
And it's literally the word. It means justified. It means you're in the right. You can walk free. It isn't actually about your performance. It's not about how you look. It's not about your ethical perfection. It's not about your morality. It's not about your achievement. It's not about anything external to you. It's not about what you are at all. It's about what God says about who you are. It's all about him and it's nothing about you. It's about the judge and not the person who receives the verdict. All we do is receive the verdict. So to be declared to be in the right is for the judge, king, for God himself to say something about you. It isn't a verdict that comes to us from the inside. It isn't something that's offered to us by somebody else. It is something that only one person can give. One being in all of history can give this verdict and one being alone and that being is God. And because of that, this verdict is unchangeable. And because of that, this verdict is unshakable. And it has nothing to do with performance. It has nothing to do whatsoever with attainment. It only has to do with grace. It only has to do with what God says about you. That's what righteousness is all about. And whose righteousness do we get? The righteousness that comes from God based on faith. God's righteousness. God's declaration. Better even than Alan Sugar's. What feeling do those contestants get when Sugar finally looks at them and says, you're hired. It's that kind of declaration that we get from God. Only the consequences are far more Far-reaching, wide-ranging. They have to do with our whole future. Not just the next few years working in partnership with Alan Sugar, but this is about who we are. This is about identity. This is about the deepest core part of who we are. Yet whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss. The the image Paul trades on here is is a, a financial image. Accountants, this is for you. This is a profit and loss ledger. And Paul says, whatever was in the profit column, this whole thing's been flipped. And it's now loss. Something has happened which has turned Paul's reality on its head. So that everything that was amazing is now done. What has happened? Paul says, that I may gain Christ... Listen to this. Be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, it comes from obeying the commandments. From the checklist that you run. Hey, I'm okay at the moment because I did X, Y, and Z. Hey, I'm okay because I just finished my last assignment on time. And I got a first. Hey, I'm okay because... My mum's pleased with me at the moment. I'm okay because my husband or my wife is healthy. Whatever it is, whatever, whatever your checklist is. Paul's saying, no, that's not the kind of righteousness that God gives in Christ. It's the passing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. He says it's about being found in him. Being found in Jesus is about being identified with Jesus. The righteousness that comes from God is about being identified with Jesus. This is the place. This is the identity we have to have if we want to be confident. In any meaningful and any lasting sense. It's about being identified with Jesus. 
What do we get if we're found in him? Righteousness, yeah, the declaration that we're in the right with God, that that can never change, but alongside everything else as well. If we receive Christ's righteousness, what, what does it feel like to receive it? It feels like peace. It feels like peace. It feels like confidence. It feels like security, not arrogance, but a settled sense of being okay with God. doesn't feel like anxiety. Paul says, just want to read this to you quickly in Romans 5. Verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we've been justified, that's the same word in, in Greek as, as declared to be in the right. Since we've been declared to be in the right with God through faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. Through whom we've gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Second thing we get is access into God's grace. In other words, we don't need to be afraid that God's going to punish us. We know we can be assured that God's posture towards us is favour. Because we've been declared to be in the right with God. So we get peace. We get grace. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We get hope. We get hope that what God has done, what he's declared, he will fulfill. That there will come a day where we'll be fully experiencing the hope of the glory of God. We will, in fact, share in his glory. We get peace, we get grace, we get hope. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out in our, into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Peace, grace, hope, love. This is what his righteousness affords us. Better than a CV. Now what? Now what? Think of all the energy you've been spending establishing your own righteousness. Think of all the, the time you spend before you go to bed at night, thinking about the conversation you had, the words you said, the words you should have said, the things you did, the things you wish you'd done, the regrets you have, the achievements you wish you'd delivered on, the promises you wish you'd made, the promises you wish you hadn't made, the ways you fell short of your own standard performance, all attempts to establish your own righteousness. What about if you stopped doing that? What about if you realised there was no need to do that anymore? What about if you accepted his righteousness on your behalf? How much more time would you have? How much more energy would you have? How, mu how much more free would you be? If you knew that you couldn't add anything to yourself by doing better in your degree or by getting that next promotion, that it wasn't, gonna, it wasn't actually going to make a difference because you already had it all anyway. Because the only voice that mattered had already said, declare to be in the right, in the right with me. 
And you knew that that verdict that he'd given you was the verdict you were going to hear in the future when you see him face to face. You already have the approval of the only voice that will ever matter. So what are you going to use all that energy for? Uh, last Sunday at church, some of you will have heard, uh, there was a real sense of God stirring something in worship and Amy in particular, I, felt, I think, was really stirred. There was a, I think what might be described as a roar emerging from the front. And actually on, on Wednesday when we gathered here in Third Wednesday, there was again a sense of like, God is up to something at the moment, particularly. And let me tell you what he's up to, what we feel he's up to. We've been praying about it. We prayed as a staff team on Wednesday morning. Before third Wednesday, we do that every third Wednesday. We pray for the church, we pray for you. We do that more than just every third Wednesday. You'd be pleased to know. But what we sense God's doing is, is bringing liberty. That's the word that's going around our heads and our hearts. It's liberty. It's, it's just a fancy word for freedom. A really nice word. And the liberty particularly we sense in bringing is a liberty, a freedom from caring what others think. The freedom to just be free before God. The fr- you know, the thing is, if we don't care what other people think, we're actually free to love them. If we're, if we're constantly worried about what other people think of us, we can't actually love them. We'll only ever be using them. Using them to make us feel better about ourselves. But if we're free of what their opinions, we're actually free then to love them. That's the freedom God is bringing. That's the freedom he wants to bring us. What is the freedom for? Paul's answer, very simply, is this. I want to know Christ, verse 10. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, that somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here it is. Use your energy to know Christ. Pour your energy. Pour your affection. Pour your devotion. Pour your finance. Pour your heart, your soul, your spirit. Pour your relationships. Pour everything into pursuit of Jesus Christ and him alone because he's the only one that's going to satisfy. And in greater measure, you will experience every day his peace, his joy, his love, his grace. Imagine a church. Imagine your life free of worry. Free of worry about what others think. Perfectly secure, at peace, content and whole. Imagine a church of people like that, a whole gathering of people, not all having arrived, as Paul's about to say, not that I've already attained all this, or have already been made perfect. We'll look at that next week. But imagine what would it look, what would it feel like to be part of a community journeying in that direction? That's where we're going, folks. Imagine the impact that might have on a city like Nottingham. A group of people that didn't care anymore about what each other thought of them, but actually was free to serve, not just one another, but a city. That is where we're headed, church. Let's stand and ask the Holy Spirit to do it in us.